Hello, I'm Alec, and this is Scandal 101. Happy Friday to you. I hope you are doing well. Let me tell you, so I am doing a remote internship, and the internship itself I love so much. It's very interesting. I'm learning a lot. I'm working on legal issues that are just interesting, but the only thing is I'm staring at my computer for eight to nine hours per day. And because of this, my eyes hurt really badly. I've put the night vision thing on my computer, so the screen is pretty yellow. The glasses that I wear have blue light protectors. I don't really know what else to do for my eyes' sake, but I always have a headache at the end of the day. And the room I have like I'm working in is well lit, there's a natural light, I'm not in a dark space. So if anyone has advice about how to alleviate eye strain from staring at a computer screen all day, please let me know because I would greatly appreciate it. And please send it to the email also with your personal scandals because my eyes are killing me. But that's not the point of this podcast. So thanks for tuning in. I read an article in the news today about a camp in the Bay Area in California, which is closing for this summer after staffers are quitting because of the swastika uh, swastika symbol in the campsite. And from what I've read in the article, it sounds like the, the people who founded the camp went on a vacation to Asia back in the early 1900s, and they were obsessed with Buddhist symbols, including the swastika, which I did not know the swastika was originally a Buddhist symbol, but according to this article it was. And obviously with the Nazis in Germany, the swastika came to mean something very different. So the one hanging in the camp is not was not put there by Nazi supporters. It was put there by people who were Buddhist. But there's a huge disagreement about keeping that up, even though it was put there by the founders and what it means and the impacts it has today. So that's an interesting thing. I would like to know, maybe I'll do an episode about scandalous symbols, because that would be interesting. Talk about the swastika and other things that have various meanings or double meanings. I don't know, maybe so. But anyway, so that's what I've seen in the news recently. Yeah, let's just dive in. It's June, which means it's Pride Month, so happy Pride Month again. Said it last episode, gonna say it every episode this month, and I was looking into hmm, what kind of episode could I do that is an LGBTQ plus scandal or something related to that? And so I just did a little searchy search on the website, google.com. Love it. Check it out if you haven't seen it. And I found this interesting story that started with a scandal and it eventually helped lead to the decriminalization of homosexuality in the United Kingdom. So this episode is 
titled The Wild Blood Scandal, and the sources I used for this episode, I used a article by Kate Aaron titled People in History, Peter Wildblood, two websites or two articles, pages from the British Library, one titled A Timeline of LGBTQ Communities in the UK, and the other one by Stephen Dryden titled A Short History of LGBT Rights in the UK, an article by Milagros Chirinos, from the HRC, Human Rights Campaign, titled Historic Victory for Marriage Equality in Northern Ireland, and then two Wikipedia pages. And of course, those sources are linked in the show notes, so if you want to check any of them out, please do. Before I dive into this scandal, I am going to do some history about LGBTQ rights and laws in the United Kingdom because it's more complex than I thought, and it also impacts the story. So the first law addressing homosexuality goes back to, I'll let you take a second to guess, maybe the early 1900s, maybe the 1800s. Nope, it goes all the way back to 1533. The act was called the Buggery Act, which horrible act, but what a great name. The law's name the Buggery Act. It was passed in Parliament in 1533 when Henry VIII was in charge. This was the first time in the United Kingdom and England that homosexuality was going to be persecuted. The Buggery Act, it didn't exclusively target homosexual acts between men. It also applied to sodomy between men and women, as well as between a person and an animal which, don't get me wrong, I'm all in favor of a law banning bestiality, but this buggery act, not so great. Even though the act targeted multiple groups of people like men and men, men and women, men and animals, it was mainly used against male-on-male homosexual um, acts and people, so homosexual convictions were the most common under this law, and those convictions were the most publicized. If one were to be punished under this act, it would could, it could result in a death sentence. So this act is in place starting in 1533, and then we're going to fast forward all the way to 1828 when the Buggery Act was, was repealed, and it was replaced with the Offenses Against the Person Act of 1828. This law directly targeted sexual acts between two men rather than a broad-scale approach of men and women, men and men, men and animals. So this one more targeted toward men-on-men homosexuality, and under this act, punishments could still be a death sentence. In 1835, the last two men to be executed for homosexual acts were executed in the United Kingdom. Their names were James Pratt and John Smith, and they were executed on November 27, 1835. Fast forwarding to 1861, there is a new law, but it has the same title. This one is titled the Offenses Against the Person Act of 1861, and this law revoked the death penalty for homosexual acts between men, thank goodness, but... It replaced it with a prison term of hard labor that would last 10 years to life. One thing I also want to point out that you might have noticed is there's not a law criminalizing homosexual acts between women. In England, it has always been legal for women 
and like two women to have sexual relations. And that's not to say that it wouldn't be ridiculed or persecuted or punished by people in the town or society. But law-wise and legal-wise, there were no laws outlawing homosexual acts between women, which not a huge relevant part of the story, but I just think it's interesting that these laws were only, only targeting and punishing homosexual men, men-on-men sexual acts, and not homosexual acts as a whole in terms of men and women. Just interesting. Just a couple of years later, in 1866, there was a case called Hyde versus Hyde, where it established the legal definition of marriage, and the definition was between one man and one woman. That definition would have legal implications for more than 100 years. In 1885, there was the Criminal Law Amendment Act, which was passed, and it was otherwise known as the LaBruchere Amendment. It was used to prosecute those who did, quote, any acts of gross indecency with male persons, end quote. What this act essentially did is it created an incentive for people to blackmail men who were caught doing homosexual acts. Basically, you catch your neighbor getting it on freaky with the other male neighbor. There's an incentive to turn them in, or you could just blackmail them for whatever they've got. This act, it reduced the minimum term of hard labor, which is good in some sense, but there's still a hard labor sentence under this act, and it was a minimum of two years of hard labor instead of the previous act having 10 years minimum hard labor. This act, this amendment, was also famously used to prosecute Oscar Wilde, who was an author, a playwright, and a poet. In the 1920s, there was an attempt to protect children under 16 from indecent assault, which is definitely a good motive, and the bill said, quote, any act of gross indecency between female persons shall be a misdemeanor and punishable in the same manner as any such act committed by the male persons under Section 11 of the Criminal Law Amendment Act 1885. Basically, this act, this law, it was an attempt to criminalize female homosexual acts or lesbianism, though there was large agreement that lesbianism was, quote, distasteful and an attack on the fundamental institutions of society, end quote, the bill was rejected because of fears that it would draw attention to the offense and that it would encourage women to explore their sexuality. Oh no, what a horrible thing to happen. In 1946, there was an autobiography titled Self, A Study in Endocrinology by Michael Dillon. It has been described as an autobiography of the first transgender man to undergo phalloplasty surgery, and it tells of the author's journey from Laura to Michael, so it's telling their transgender story. And finally, in 1951, the first known British transgender woman underwent a sex reassignment surgery. Her name was Roberta Cowell, and she was the first known transgender woman to undergo vaginoplasty surgery in the United Kingdom. So that history leads us to where this, or to when this scandal took place. This story primarily focuses around two men who pushed hard for reform in the United Kingdom, Peter Wildblood and Edward Montagu. We're first going to talk about Peter. Peter was born in Alassio, Italy in 1923. 
He grew up, and after dropping out of college pretty shortly after starting due to illness, he volunteered for the Royal Air Force. He was in there, but after a series of crashes, he was grounded and became a meteorologist for the Royal Air Force until the end of World War II. He went back to his college at Trinity College where he found a group of other homosexual people in the theater and arts field. It was during World War II before Peter went back to college that he had multiple sexual encounters with women, which helped confirm the fact that he was gay or homosexual. Also, homosexual is not commonly used anymore as gay is, but homosexual was used a lot in these documents and articles I was reading because that was the term back then. So I'm not trying to be like super formal or anything, this was just the term that was used. After Peter graduated college, he worked as a hotel waiter while he was writing and selling articles to Vogue and Punch. He wrote a play called Primrose and the Peanuts, which received pretty good reviews in the national press, and then he eventually got hired on at the Daily Mail. He was first hired on as a royal correspondent and then was later promoted to diplomatic correspondent. It was around this time that he started a relationship with Royal Air Force Corporal Edward McNally. During the summer of 1953, Peter and his boyfriend were invited to the beach hut of, you guessed it, Lord Edward Montagu. So this is where our people intersect. Let's talk about Edward. Edward, whose full name is... Edward John Barrington Douglas Scott Montagu was a well-known conservative politician in Great Britain. He was born in 1926 in London and became a baron at just two years old after his father died of pneumonia. He grew up going to a prep school and he took his seat in the House of Lords once he was legally an adult. Edward was bisexual and he said that he knew this pretty early on in his life. He went to Oxford for college, and he said that he was happy to go there because he was able to meet others who were like him, and about this in a 2000 interview, he said, quote, My attraction to both sexes never changed nor diminished at university, and it was comforting to find that I was not the only person faced with such a predicament. I agonized less than my contemporaries, for I was reconciled to my bisexuality, but I was still nervous about being exposed. End quote. Eventually, Edward would be very publicly uh, revealed as a, as a gay person, as a bisexual person. First was in 1953 for allegedly having sex with a 14-year-old Boy Scout at his beach hut, and he has always denied this charge, and he was not convicted of the charge. And about this charge, he characterizes it as a witch hunt to try to get a high-profile conviction. And there's going to be a little more about that later. And the second one is when Edward and Peter crossed paths in the national spotlight. Edward and Peter were friends, and they went to the beach hut with Peter's boyfriend named Edward Edward McNally, who I said, but I'm just going to call him McNally because there's two Edwards, and another Royal Air Force person named John Reynolds. They were also joined by Edward's cousin, Michael Pitt Rivers. They go to this beach hut, and reportedly from what they say, it sounds like they were just kind of hanging out, dancing, there was maybe some kissing involved, but from what I could find, it didn't seem like too much was going on there, but eventually 
Peter, Edward Montague, and Michael, who was Edward's cousin, were arrested on January 9th, 1954. Their flats were searched without a warrant, and the press got wind of what they were arrested for before the three men knew what they were being charged for. On top of the men's flats being searched without a warrant, and on top of the press learning before, they were also denied legal advice for over five hours. And with this being front page news the next day, this is part of the reason why Edward Montague calls his charges a witch hunt. This was after, so their arrests, the search, the denying of legal advice, and the press finding out, this was after the Home Secretary had called for, quote, a new drive against male vice, end quote, and reportedly saying that he wanted a high-profile conviction. So while I definitely don't want to completely rule out that Edward Montague maybe assaulted a 14-year-old boy, at the same time, this was in the 1950s when homophobia was at a pretty high spot. They were reportedly wanting a high-profile conviction, and they seem to target the same person multiple times because he is a pretty high-ranking lord and a baron. It seems to check out to me. And also, I mean, not that really anyone would admit to sexually assaulting a 14-year-old boy, but it was something that he denied his entire life. At the eventual trial, both Peter's boyfriend, McNally, and the other person from the Royal Air Force, John, turned Queen's evidence, which means they would testify in order for leniency and their sentencing. But when this trial started, the trial seemed to be stacked against the men who were actually on trial. Counsel for Peter requested for women to be on the jury, but when the trial started, there were no women on the jury. Peter was spat on in the street on one of the opening days of the trial, but as the trial went on, it kind of became more clear that the two men who said that they would testify in support of the case seemed to be bullied and harassed into doing it, into turning Queen's evidence. Their private lives were torn apart, they were embarrassed, they were ridiculed, so it kind of seems like the two men who were trying to help prosecute these other three men Seems like they were harassed into it, and this is just my theory, but I also wonder, since those two men were part of the Royal Air Force, if the government had something to do with it, which I wouldn't be surprised. Just a theory, but kind of suspicious that that was all happening. During the trial, it was, of course, getting a lot of attention, because not only are these high-profile people, but it is also dealing with the issue of criminalized homosexuality. In this trial, Peter did something that no one in the public eye in England had done before. He admitted that he was homosexual, and he did this in the courtroom, and when he was doing this, he tried to explain to the jury that he was capable of loving another person, and he tried to describe the passion that was between him and McNally, his boyfriend, who was now uh, testifying for the other side. Unfortunately, this bold move by Peter, him declaring his sexuality in the open, it didn't work, and Peter and Michael were sentenced to 18 months in prison, and Edward was sentenced to one year in prison. Though the jury wasn't persuaded by Peter's declaration of his sexuality, 
it seemed like some people in the public were. After this trial, there was a mob of 200 people that formed outside of the courthouse, and they were there to protest the conviction of the three men. When Peter, Edward, and Michael came out of the courthouse, they were met with loud applause from the mob, and when the two Royal Air Force people who switched sides came, they had to have police protection because the mob was trying to get them. Because this trial was so high profile and there was a lot of commotion after the verdict and a lot of seemingly public support saying, well, I guess public support saying we don't support this, so public support in support of the men, God, I said support a lot. The Home Secretary ordered Lord Wolfenden to examine the practice of criminalizing homosexuality. Wolfenden headed up a committee, and Peter testified before the committee, who eventually, and this is a committee, eventually recommended to decriminalize homosexuality. Peter testified in front of the committee shortly after getting out of prison, and he also released a book titled Against the Law, which described the many injustices that he suffered by the police and the legal system. While he was writing this book, so he was doing a lot. He was testifying in front of this committee. He was writing and releasing a book. But on top of all of that, he bought a bar while writing the book. And in the bar, he met many people that inspired him to write a second book called A Way of Life. This book was made up of dozens of essays that described the different lives of people he had met in an attempt to normalize homosexuality and to prove that homosexuality existed in all different walks of life. Peter later became a TV producer, published two more books, and was known as playing a major role in the decriminalization of homosexuality in England and Wales. He passed away in 1999 at the age of 76, and Edward Montagu lived a long life and died in 2015 at the age of 88. To wrap up this episode, I'm going to continue a little bit with the historical timeline because laws with homosexuality and equality that has been fought for in the United Kingdom, it didn't stop with the Wolfenden Report. In 1967, the Sexual Offenses Act decriminalized homosexual acts between two men over 21 years old in private. But comparing this to other laws that were in place at the time, the age of the consent for Two men was 21, but the age of consent for heterosexuals and lesbians was 16 years old. So again, kind of a weird little thing where it's just homosexual men seemingly being punished, but lesbians and obviously heterosexuals are not being as criticized or uh, legislated against. In 1968, the DSM-2 listed homosexuality as a mental disorder, and it wouldn't be until 1992 that the World Health Organization would remove homosexuality from a list of mental disorders. In 1972, the first United Kingdom Pride March took place. In 1980, sex between two men was decriminalized in Scotland. In 1981, the United Kingdom had its first recorded case of AIDS. In 1988, Section 28 was enacted, which prohibited local authorities from having the ability to support LGBT constituents, which resulted in funding being withdrawn from art projects and educational materials, and resources that talked about gay families were censored which is funny because that sounds a lot like what's going on in some of the states in the United States now, banning books and library books, 
when we clearly have many other issues that need to be tackled. In 1994, the age of consent for gay men was lowered to 18 years old, but again, compared to the lesbian age of consent, it was not equal. In the year 2000, Section 28 was abolished, and in 2001, the age of consent for gay men was lowered to 16 years old. In 2003, protections were put in place to protect gay, lesbian, and bisexual workers from discrimination in the workplace, and in 2004, an act was put into place giving transgender people full legal recognition. In 2014, same-sex marriage came into effect, and in 2017, the Allen Turning Law was enacted which, quote, pardoned all historical instances of criminal convictions of gross indecency against men, end quote. So basically, they just pardoned all the homophobic prosecutions that happened in the past. And then finally, in 2019, Northern Ireland joined Scotland, England, and Wales in allowing same-sex couples to get married. I'm going to end this episode with a quote from Peter. He said, quote, the right which I claim for myself and for all those like me is the right to choose the person whom I love. End quote. And with that, that concludes the Wild Blood Scandal. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I wanted to choose it for a couple of reasons. One, this is not a United States scandal, so it was cool to do some research about a scandal in a different country, but more importantly, it's Pride Month, and around the world, many are celebrating victories and equality for the LGBTQ plus community, but unfortunately, in many parts of the world, and in many parts of quote-unquote developed and advanced countries, LGBTQ plus rights are under attack. So it's important to remember where the LGBTQ plus movement came from. It's important to understand why there is a Pride Month that literally you could be killed for being gay at one point in history, that you could be jailed for it, that you could be sentenced to hard labor. And of course, this is in the United Kingdom, but many other places, basically everywhere, you could be punished for expressing who you love and expressing your true self. So... It's important to remember that Pride Month, while yes, is a celebration and it's happy and it's great to dress up in rainbow gear and all of that fun stuff, there is a lot of history behind it and it's important to understand a little bit of it. So that was my goal with this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And so now I am going to dive into the personal scandal, which also has to do with a gay thing. <laughs> so this person wrote in and said, I knew a gay guy who stayed in the closet so long that he and his wife had about a 20-year-old son. He ended up dating one of his wife's friends after their divorce, and the fun part is that they are all still in the same friend group that comes together every year for a week to celebrate New Year's Eve. Although, I'm pretty sure she hates him because they barely share a word every year. Ugh, that would be awkward. But at the same time... I don't know, like they were already divorced and then he came out. But then again, I don't know, it's tough because one, you want to be supportive. But at the same time, if you were married to someone for 20 years and then you got divorced and then they came out as gay, 
you could maybe feel like they were kind of using you and obviously each situation is different so i can kind of maybe sympathize with the wife if she is not happy with that situation but at the same time it's good to be supportive of everyone and he didn't cheat on her so yeah complicated situation but thank you for sending in that personal scandal and if you have your if you have a personal scandal you want to send in it can be family friends school work related a small town scandal anything send it to scandal101podcast at gmail.com. And I'm going to post photos related to this episode on social media, Instagram at scandal101podcast, Twitter at scandal101pod. On Facebook, search scandal101podcast. You'll find it on there. I already said the email, the website where you can find the show notes, and you can also find the show notes in the episode description, but the website is scandal101podcast.podbean.com. Alrighty, that concludes this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Happy Pride Month. I hope you celebrate in whatever way you want to, or you can just be kind to people who may be different than you. And with that, this has been episode 55 of Scandal 101.